This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today we have a special guest, uh, Sheila. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is Sheila Aird, and I have been a hospice nurse for, um, it'll soon be my 18th anniversary, January 3rd, 2003, I started a hospice nurse. I am a clinical liaison for hospice at the University of Chicago Medicine, and I am board certified in hospice, and it has been my dream job for the last 18 years. I started, um, I'm a really old nurse, but I started... (laughs) um, 36 years ago, I did about 13 years of um, critical care, um, ICU, heart surgery, that kind of stuff. And when I moved to Chicago, uh, which is 25 years ago, I was um, hired as a consultant for the Inspector General for DCFS. And that's actually how I I became involved with hospice. We had a little boy um, who was dying of a childhood cancer that could have been Prevented, but he got lost in the healthcare system. And the inspector general at the time told me to go out to see him and to make sure that he had everything that he needed um, to be safe and comfortable. And he was in a facility with 24 hour support from pediatric hospice. And um, at the time, I was working part time, um, you know, kind of being a mom. And when I came home, I announced, um, you know, if I ever have to work full-time, this is the job that I need to do. And then within about a year, um, I was married at the time and my husband lost his health benefits. And I came home that day and um, I get recruited all the time, but never by hospice. There were two hospice companies that called me that day um, to offer me a position. And I went with the first one. So I've been a hospice nurse for 18 years. Uh, Where did you grow up? I grew up in Newfoundland, Canada. Um, people, when, when I discuss that with Americans, I tell them um, most people relate to it was where the Titanic sank was just off the Grand Banks in Newfoundland. So at least they can picture that it's an island, you know, off the coast of Canada. Mm. Um, that's where I grew up. That, I, that, that surprised me, Sheila. I did not know you were Canadian. That's very cool. Uh, but speaking of that, that beginning hospice experience, uh, a child, I mean, pediatric hospice is very difficult, and uh, there you are, thrown into something right away. Uh, how did you know what to do? There were hospice experts at the bedside. Ah, so, okay. you know, when, when I first started, it was just, this is the kind of nursing that I want to do, this holistic approach to the patient comes first, the family comes first. and you know, I, I went in and his original cancer should have been curative and he got lost in the system. And unfortunately, um, he was dying from a metastatic head neck cancer and he was very symptomatic. But he was in the process of giving away 
his toys. And he gave me a little red fire truck the day that I was there. Hmm. And I'm sorry, I got goosebumps, but you know, it, it just made me want to get involved with what this bigger picture and before then, you know, I, I've had some um, cancer deaths in my family. My very first hospice patient was my sister-in-law. We were both 25 years old and she was a day older than I was. And she had been fighting cancer for six years and she died in 1990. I uh, went home to see her. She was hospitalized and I went in, her name is Shelly, and I went in to see her and I hadn't seen her in six months and she was very emaciated. The cancer had spread to her brain. Um, she was very cachectic. And I said, Shelly, what do you want me to do? And she said, Sheila, get me home. Um, mm. So at the time, you know, that was, you know, 1990, it was kind of the very beginning of hospice and palliative care. But we got her home and um, she lasted about two and a half weeks before she passed away. But it was remarkable to be able to focus all, all her care at home. So it's kind of been the pathway. It's, it's been there in the background and I didn't know it was going to emerge as, you know, my, my pathway and my dream job, um, but it happened. You, you, when we were talking before we came on air, you were talking about how everybody needs a spiritual guide, a spiritual counselor. Uh, so what is your background? What is your faith background? I was born Catholic. I consider myself now to be um, more spiritual without being religious. There is a church in the city, um, Unity, that I attend, but, you know, it's online, so we're, we're doing that now. And that's part of what I think hospice has taught me, that, you know, it's a spiritual journey. We're all birthed into this world. We're all birthed out, and I have to be respectful of everybody's journey. So I, I have kind of a broader expanse on you know, spirituality and religion that everyone has their own pathway. Where did you get your training uh, to move towards hospice nursing? You know, my, my first job um, was I was hired as a case manager um, with a pretty big agency here in Chicago. And they took me in under wing. There was a medical director. They were all about really providing really solid, solid education. And then they quickly moved me from a case manager into admissions and then um, into uh, a manager role. And I was a manager for the first, well, it was actually this, their first hospice unit in the city of Chicago, um, but the second um, hospice unit in Chicago. And inpatient hospice, nursing. That's one of my passions. And part of it was because the entire interdisciplinary team mm. was there and available for every single patient. So, you know, they can have spiritual support. They have the medical director there. They have the nurses working on the clinical side. And, you know, that, that's one of my passions. I love inpatient hospitals. <laughs> um, it's part of it, right? It's part of the journey. I think I love all aspects of hospice nursing, but, you know, I think there's, just the measurements along the way that just kind of touch you and keep you going. You know, you have these amazing experiences and days that help you deal with the days that are really hard, difficult. So you hold on to those. You know, I've been studying a lot about the pioneers of hospice and the initial philosophy of hospice at St. Christopher's. I think it was, it was meant to be inpatient. 
and mm-hmm. because everyone is there just like you said which which makes it really special and helps the family yeah. even much more so you know when where i grew up in newfoundland and in canada um so it was called palliative care you know back in the 80s and 90s but um when someone had a terminal illness and had less than six months left to live, there was a place that they could go to live and receive hospice and palliative care, which is a little bit different than here. My ex-husband is from Scotland, so you know I'm familiar kind of with the European model as well, where there, there are hospice homes that people can go and live in um, if they don't have the support structures at home. Why has it taken so long here in the States to uh, see the benefit of that hospice home? Because I know there's a few here in, the, in Illinois. I, mean, I, I worked for the, one of the agencies that had one, and I worked in the hospice home uh, on occasion. I was not assigned to that location uh, and found that to be an incredible experience because you have that whole team aspect there, and you get to see the family, and you don't... And everybody's there doing it, and it's 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 wonderful. I mean, why is it taking so long? I don't know. Maybe we have to um, talk to the governor or something about <laughs> what the needs are <laughs> for what we're seeing in Chicago. You know, there's a difference between an inpatient kind of hospice facility and the regulations for those, and hospice residents. And I don't know of a hospice residence in Illinois. They're you know inpatient hospice units. Those units are available for aggressive symptom management right, or right. for respite care. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a big gap in care for the patients and families for, um, you know, 24-hour support either at home. It's, you know, it's incredibly expensive, both spiritually, emotionally, and financially for families to have to provide 24-hour support for their loved ones at home. At the beginning of your hospice journey, uh, were there moments where you thought this is too overwhelming? Because you pick up a lot of emotions. How did you handle the initial years of your work in hospice? I think I was mentored. Um, the really, I had some such difficult cases when I first started, and um, I remember reading an article, and I wish I had kept it. And so it, it takes you through you know, being a novice in a hospice to intermediate to being an expert. And the expertise really doesn't come until probably five, six years down the road that you have enough overall experience that you can anticipate everything. I had some amazing supervisors throughout my entire nursing career Mm. and um, access to the medical directors and access to support. I remember, you know, that the medical director... Um, used to call and check on me, um, you know, anticipating because we would discuss every case. And, you know, a couple times a week, he'd, he'd call and say, Sheila, are you doing okay? How's that? You know, how are you handling the family? How are the family doing? What help do you need? So the education and support was, was amazing. And I think, you know, part of hospice and getting together at least every two weeks to talk every about every patient, we're set up kind of tell their stories to learn from what you're seeing and for somebody else, you know, to jump in and say, Hey, this is what, you know, this is what you actually, um, you know, you might want to try for this patient. So it really was the education and support was amazing. Mm. 
So it really kind of helped balance, you know, the difficult, difficult cases. Any examples of a difficult case that you had to deal with? I was pretty brand new in hospice and I went to see a patient. He was writhing in pain and um, his caregiver was a friend. Um, the man was, you know, a gentleman. He had a gentleman friend. Um, the the caregiver was really kind of in an angry phase. And I walked in and um, on the headboard of the bed, there was a gun. Mm. And I asked the man, you know, I said, "Is it took me a while to, to see it. I was so focused on the patient. But right behind his bed, there was a gun. And I asked him, you know, was that actually loaded? And he said, yeah. Mm. <laughs> and um, I was in between this patient writhing in pain with a gun behind his head and an angry gentleman who was blocking my way, getting out of the, the bedroom. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was probably less than four months as a hospice nurse. So, you know, I, I was able to say, I need to go out to the car to get some supplies and Thank God we were able to use, start using cell phones um, back then and have access to immediate supervisor, and they were able to give me instructions. So, you know, probably a, a couple of weeks later on a Friday, I was driving home. I got a call to say, you know, can you go see another patient? This was a gentleman. He had a drug addiction problem um, with heroin, and he had caregivers who were also heroin addicts who were um, in a program to come off, the man had taken a week's worth of methadone and had swallowed it. Mm. And he mm. needed continuous care. But the fact that they were so grateful to have me come in and see him. And, you know, the, the fact that he actually had a heroin addiction, I think actually prevented him from dying so quickly because you know, I went in and he had regular breathing. He was breathing two breaths a minute and that went on for, I was probably in the house four or five hours. So I was just talking to him and calling his name and, you know, providing support to the people. The continuous care nurse came out and relieved me about four hours later. He turned out to be my patient and I went back to see him Monday. You know, that his caregivers were delighted to see me again. And he goes, I, I heard your voice. You know, I, I stayed because I heard your voice. You were helpful. Wow. So, you know, and it's just uh, things like this happen all the time where you see some remarkable things happening in people's homes and you have to kind of just figure out, well, what's their pathway? What do they need? What help do they need from me right now? And thank goodness there's organizations behind you who can reach out and support. So, you know, those are kind of some difficult things that you settle down, you know, that I remember in the very first night I was on call, I had a death visit and I went out and, and this is part of, you know, the, the, the family was very appreciative, but at the time I had to flush some fentanyl patches, which were plastic. And at the time they told you to wrap them in toilet paper and flush them down. I blocked the patient's toilet, the very first death. Oh. And the the toilet starts overflowing in there in the in the in the bathroom. So I have to go out to the wife to say, um, "Do you have a plunger?" So she burst out laughing and said, 
oh, we have trouble down here. You know, it was in the basement. and But it was just <laughs> like life happens and we kind of have to deal with everything that comes up. And, you know, you hospice professionals and, well, people, healthcare professionals and in general, we eat problems for breakfast, dinner, and lunch, and you just have mm-hmm. to kind of, oh boy, you know, I didn't anticipate um, flooding someone's toilet, um, but you kind of just have to do what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of just approaching it with life and compassion, and you know, people people can deal with what's happening if you can show them a pathway to you know feeling better or solving a problem. Got a question for you, Sheila. You, your stories indicate that you take the time to be with the patients and their families. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I sense that this day and age, some 18, 20 years later, that uh, sometimes the nurses don't take, because they have so many other things they've got to do with charting and et cetera, et cetera, that they don't take that time. And... I mean, do you train your 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 nurses to, you know, be with the family? I mean, and and to ask questions about family history and stories and things like that, because I know it can get really. I mean, especially with COVID, that's very difficult with getting that time. I think um, you know every hospice organization has kind of a different culture and. When I've been in management roles, I've been able to lead them with what it is that I do. And the idea that the patient has a personal thread and that the family have a personal thread. So when I go in to see someone, you know, what I always say is the patient is an expert in them. You guys are an expert in your family system. A hospice nurse is an expert in symptom management and fork in the road conversations. Let's talk about you and your family. Where are you? And I just stop and I listen and I let them tell their story. And what happens with this is as they tell their story, I'm hearing where my obstacles are, mm-hmm. where there are going to be challenges, who as part of the team is the best person to help with where they are so that. At the end of it, it might be 30 minutes of listening, but I can establish a plan of care that is individualized for the patient and the family and start them down a pathway of success with hospice based on, you know, I can have this person help you with this. I can have this person help you with this. And when when we get a hospice referral, that's a crisis for a family, you know, mm-hmm. there, that's mm-hmm. an emergency. And whoever that first person is in um, to help settle whatever the chaos is, it might be symptoms, it might be financial, it might be caregiving burden, it might be, you know, a, another recent death in the family. But if you can set up, this is what the patient, this is what's important to this patient. This is what we need to accomplish for them. That everybody's pathway with hospice is different. You know, it's not, when we talk about it, yes, symptom management is important, family support and, you know, um, psychosocial support and sometimes helping them financially. 
there's all there's similar burdens um, probably for every case, but every case is different. Mm-hmm. So when you can go that pathway of what is it that's special about this patient and family and what do they want to accomplish? You're you're walking you're walking a pathway of success for them and developing a bond of trust. With that we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at NAMI.org. This is Sol Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Ashila, before the break, we were talking about uh, listening. And one of my mottos is talk less, listen more, because listening is so important in end-of-life care. Can you talk to us more about that? I think it's the soul of getting to know who your patient and your family are. Um, one of the concepts that I've learned over, you know, the time that I've been in hospice is their story is important. And every time they tell their story, they also heal a little bit. And, you know, a normal doctor, when you're thinking, oh my God, if you have a a cancer patient and they're going in, you know, the doctor only has 10 or 15 minutes to figure out what that is. Um, but they don't really have the time to sit down and say, where are you? What help do you need? What's happening with your family? But a hospice nurse, that's what our expertise is. Where are you? Who are you? Who's your family? Um, how can I help support you? And they give them the time to tell their story. And as they're outlining who they are, who their family structure are, they're also going to outline for you um, where there's obstacles, um, where there's challenges. And a hospice nurse can then start to put together a plan that can be really effective for them. Mm. So it really is about their individual story. Who are they? What did they do before they got sick? You know, part of what I believe in hospice, you know, that it is such an amazing journey. Um, but if we can get them past the fact that they've just heard this is terminal, hospice is about, is about living well for the time you have left. Mm. And if you can start to show them that, it's such an amazing relief for the families and for the patients to go, this is about living well as you're dying, not to really have to focus on I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. It's like, how do you want to spend this time? How can your hospice team support you? I, I don't have a huge obstacles with families uh, kind of jumping on board and trusting me when I walk in. I, I, I don't know. Maybe that's part of who I am. Um, mm-hmm. But generally, if I just come in and I say, I, I'm here to guide you through this. You know, that's my job. Um, where are we? Let's figure out where we are. Um, and, and then we can move forward. 
when mm. they're in chaos and when I can then point out a couple pathways um, to success, which is what hospice does, you take their anxiety from a 10 and you bring it down to a two. Mm. So a lot of times they've been mm-hmm. months and months and months at such a high impact level of stress that they see competency when someone who goes, well, you know, this seems to be an issue that we could start to work on. Are, are you guys okay if we start working on a plan for this? Mm. And then, you know, people then start calling me an angel and all kinds of stuff that I'm not. I'm a human being. I make mistakes every <laughs> single day. But I've rescued them. I, mm. I've you know, it's, we've started a pathway where they feel they're stressed that somebody can help them. Mm. Um, when you have a strong hospice team behind you, then you can also kind of sell your team to say, you know, my team is as strong as I am, and you'll get the same kind of level of support that you're getting from me. So, you know, for me in my role, that's sometimes a transition, right? Because when you go in and um, provide someone with that kind of first introduction and um, support and relief of a crisis, um, they want to kind of attach themselves to me and go like, are, are you going to come and see me at home? Are you going to be my <laughs> nurse? You know, mm-hmm. and it's my role to then transition them to the field staff and to make sure the field staff have all the information I have so they can walk in the door and be successful too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why this personal story is just so important for everybody on the team to kind of hear and understand. Um, and then I'm pretty direct with the team members to say, you know, this is what the families anticipate you're going to be able to do for them. And they need to hear from you by, you know, this time. And, you know, they want a deadline for when this can happen. So you're kind of setting them up for success as well. But sometimes, no, I'm I'm pretty good at <laughs> kind of managing a bigger picture too. You spoke about uh, listening, the key to listening and developing a plan of care. Uh, there are some situations where you've encountered in your career where somebody did not listen well and did not have a proper plan of care. That that happens about every other other day. <laughs> so you know, you just. Um, it's just something I think that we're we all are kind of attuned to and experts in, um, you know, the very basics. So I've been teaching kind of advanced symptom management you know, for hospice nurses for a while. So um, I, when I'm teaching a family, so say for example, you come into a, a patient's home and their pain is nine out of ten, and you're you're looking at um, you know, your full pain assessment, what kind of pain it is. There's some immediate teaching you can do with the families about the drug, uh, when to make a measurement, what it means. So most pain medications peak an hour after you give them. So mm. if someone has pain nine out of 10 at eight o'clock in the morning and nine o'clock in the morning, their pain is still nine out of 10, I'm telling the family, you need to call your 24-hour phone number for hospice. That means the dose that we have given or the route we're giving really isn't effective. So you you set them up with 
um, I always tell patients and families, I'm giving you permission to call. That hospice isn't like a normal doctor's office where you have to wait till nine in the morning. There's always a hospice nurse available by phone. We can always give you instructions. And then, you know, the other part of, you know, the IDT that has been huge for me is to have these amazing medical directors, these doctors who are there with all this expertise about how to keep these people safe and comfortable, but to also support me and the family. So, you know, in, in 18 years of nursing, I think I've probably have waited 15 minutes for a doctor to call me back when, you know, <laughs> that's good. In, good record. In regular, uh, in regular practices, you know, the, the families have been, you know, sometimes will call in and maybe the doctor will call back that evening or it's the next day. Mm. But, if I can go, I need to call the doctor right now. They call me back. I'm still in the patient's room or I'm still in the patient's house. We fix the plan. You know, how amazing is that for a patient and family to see that kind of difference in, in how important they are and how important alleviating their suffering is? It's amazing. It is. And I think part of it is, you know, the, the doctors I work with trust me. And if they see, I'm calling them, they, they automatically know, you know, Sheila kind of knows what she's doing. If she's calling me, she needs some help. And, you know, it's just amazing teamwork. I am so interested in how you've done this all your life and continue to honor families and all that. What, how do you handle those folks that I can't say handle? How do you deal with these patients who, are quiet and yes, I'm fine. Yes, okay. I mean, we're 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 trained to listen for little things that that uh, they're saying, but they're not saying much about it, you know. Uh, and I'm not talking about even for like, oh, you know, I'm worried about, oh, my 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 son. Well, what do you worry? You know, and then that's when you start asking questions. And and I mean, do you find that that it's hard for you to be quiet with families? Sometimes it's just who they are and that they mm-hmm. are quiet, peaceful people. I, I, Everybody in my family is pretty gregarious and storytellers and big personalities. But, you know, occasionally I, I remember my quiet aunt who was just observant in the corner or, you know, people that I've come across that um, are ca- kind of more observant and just quiet. And you really have to be attuned to the family and family situation and then kind of adapt um, to who they are. So, you know, if, if someone has a tremendous sense of humor, that kind of comes out pretty, pretty soon. And I can mm-hmm. adapt with them and say, you know, is it okay? There's other times um, when there's so much grief and sadness in, in a, a patient's home that I know enough to be respectful and quiet and to adapt to where they are. Um, And I I usually, you know, part of a a solid um, assessment of how you're doing when you're leaving is to always ask them, you know, did I do what you needed for Mm -hmm. me to do today? Is there anything else I can do? Um, Did we cover what it is that you need? So you're, walking out the door going, I have satisfaction. 
Does that mean the daughter is satisfied? Maybe not. I'm going to get a call 10 minutes after I leave the house. (laughs) And she's going to say, you know, Sheila, here's some obstacle. And, um, you know, part of what I tell everybody, um, I think being a hospice nurse and being a hospice professional, I tell people that I'm a bus driver. So it's my job to get someone safely to a destination. Right, that's the patient. Mm-hmm. There's an end point. Um, there's a lot of seats on the bus. Not everybody gets on the bus at the same time. Not everybody stays on the bus, and not everybody is in the right seat. But what that means is, for a hospice, we're the the patient is the center of our care, but we also have to make room for everybody else that's getting on and off my bus. Mm-hmm. And you know, if if you can set it up that way and Especially when, you know, we come across with family disagreements and I'm really good at reaching out to our social workers and chaplains to say, you know, there's a big role for you here in this symptom. But when I can explain to a a patient's daughter who's upset about her sister or someone being away or whatever, it's like, I want you to, to focus on you and your relationship with your dad. We have the capacity to, to capture your sister who's out of town with where she is and move forward as well. So it, it gives them kind of a little bit of relief to understand, you know, my journey is a little bit different than my dad's journey who was dying and versus, you know, my sister who's out of town. And, you know, you're still working on trying to set them up with success, even as difficult as it is, but it really is, even in that extent, it's, What's their story and um, what's their personal thread? What help do they need for us? Because we have big enough expanse and help in a hospice team to get them help and support that they need. You know, um, lots of times I walk in and I go, you know, the social worker or the chaplain have a much bigger role than I do in this plan of care. So, you know, the patient might not be, um, you know, terribly symptomatic, but they might be grieving who someone who just died or, you know, their spouse died two months ago and or something else is happening in the family where the psychosocial and religious support is a lot more important at that time than clinical management of symptoms. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. This is Sole Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Sheila, how has the COVID affected you and your work? Oh, boy. Um, It really is. The spring, it was a little bit frightening, but it was manageable. Um, I think the healthcare profession is on the front line of seeing what the winter is like. The last two weeks have just been so frightening for me. Um, You know, I'm in a, a a hospital environment and um, probably 90% of my 
uh, patients in the last two weeks are COVID positive. And um, they are, there's just so much grief involved. There's, it, it really has made um, not only being in the home environment, but setting up a plan, you know, difficult because they're also acutely ill. Um, but with the virus kind of at a, a much higher rate, um, there's your own self-worry about how do I protect myself? You know, how do, how do I get through this? Um, and we're all trained to put kind of the patients and the families first, but oh, the, just the grief and, you know, lack of contact and having to call patients' families on the phone and get email consent and all of this stuff that we used to have this intimacy of sitting down and supporting each other, it's, you know, it, it kind of has changed. And I think it might stay, you know, at this elevated um, level for a couple of months. And, you know, I just wish everybody, um, you know, a safe journey and wash your hands and <laughs> wear your mask and, you know, just take a few minutes to put a plan in safe for your own safety before you, you you see a patient that's COVID positive. And, um, you know, we, we all need to survive this in order to be there to help patients and families get through this. But, um, I, I really thought that I could finish my nursing career without a pandemic, but, um, you know, part of our emergency plans that the government has requested we put together, you know, that's been on the hospice docket for about 10 years. So I think we are kind of prepared, but it's a new challenge where we're kind of more dependent on our team and psychosocial support to all of us get through this as well. The pandemic has caused a lot of moral injury. Has this also made you somehow to question uh, whether to stay in the profession or to take a break? Well, I'm, I'm pretty old and I'm not 100% healthy. It's, it's hard because I think I have had questions where, you know, I'm hopefully five or six years out from retiring, but I have questioned, you know, oh my God, I'd, I'd love to, um, you know, run a doggy daycare center <laughs> and just go like, <laughs> oh, change know, of have, pace. Have pet, pet therapy all the time. That would nurture mm-hmm. me. Like, mm-hmm. how do you, how do you sustain the stress? Right. And, mm. There isn't anybody that I have met, you know, that that doesn't um, have stress because of COVID, you know, financially, physically. Um, it really has kind of affected my my circle of friends. Um, one of my choir members died December first of COVID nineteen. Um, you know, I had a family member in Minnesota die. I've had a cousin who's. Um, family died in Kenya and you know it's just out of my five closest friends that I raised families with three of those five families have COVID in Chicago now and being passed around and these are exceptionally intelligent people who are doing what it is they needed to do to be safe but you know it's it's frontline it's here right now it's affecting people um, that are my closest friends and you know, we just have to um, stay safe and pray and hopefully get through this. How do you see our opportunities as 
the chaplain for our local hospice to help our our nurses. What do you think we could do to the for the nurse, not to the nurse, for the nurse who has been uh, walking into these rooms and we haven't been allowed? I, what, what can we do? This, <laughs> this technology that you guys are using with me today is amazing. You know, it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, what I would like to see in my own hospice is kind of um, like a regular established Zoom call where you have access, like maybe the chaplains can set up an hour, um, you know, probably whatever day it is that the nurses can just call in. You know, we all have employee assistance programs, but you guys, our social workers and our chaplains are experts in understanding where we are what our challenges are and what our patients and families need. Um, so, I, you know, I, I have enough of you guys. <laughs> just mm-hmm. every hospice I've worked with, I've, I've uh, accomplished a relationship with a medical director and the social worker and the chaplain. So I have this exponential number of people I could reach out to at any, at any point. And, um, you know, something like this is just, this gives me just, so much contentment to move forward for the next few months to go, you know, Joe gets this, Saul gets this. There's so many other professionals mm-hmm. who get it. And, um, you know, I, I, I am kind of open and expressive and I just put it out there when I need something from someone to say, I, I need help with this. I'm stuck. Uh, to hear you talk, uh, everybody's scared. Everybody's stressed. And rightfully so. So we need to bring some calm to hopefully this. Uh, what advice do you give people? I mean, we are in December and just the beginning of a busy Christmas period, how to to stop the spread? Because it's overwhelming, the hospital stuff. It's too much. You know, I think every everybody is experts in their own family situation. So I know um, what my risk is based on my own family situation. And there's just five of us and there's very little, you know, I'm, I'm probably the most at risk for bringing this back into the home because I'm out seeing COVID positive patients, um, you know, on a daily basis right now. Um, but I can understand what my risks are. Um, I have enough understanding with my, you know, circle of friends that they, uh, you know, if I give them advice that they take it, Mm. um, my concern, you know, we're we're just at the beginning of being able to see, well, what actually um, is the outcome of the Thanksgiving holiday going mm-hmm. to be? You know, we're we're a couple weeks delayed behind all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my concern is, I think the country is going to have a much uh, more intimate um, insight into what this looks like in a couple of weeks. That it's starting to affect individuals and individual families. It was and interesting. I hope that they could go. It was interesting, uh, Sheila, that I was scrolling through my Facebook pages and all that, and all of a sudden there was this uh, article in there about Canada and COVID, and they were showing the chart. And at very minimal COVID, you know, issues, issues, and then there was the Canadian Thanksgiving. And shortly right after that, I mean, it went skyrocketing with COVID. I'm worried that that's going to happen now with us. 
I think you're you're absolutely right. What I what I can measure when I go in is well, how many, you know, I remember um, before Halloween, how many COVID positive patients were in the hospital system. You know that that number right now is five times higher than it was. Holy crow! You know, in early October. Um, so I can only, you know, base my reaction to what it is that I'm seeing to go like, wow, this is, this is really the numbers are, the numbers mm-hmm. are high. Um, I would tell everybody it makes sense as difficult it is, um, you know, to, to skip these celebrations so that you can have years and years more to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, but family systems are difficult, right? Yeah. You have to get a, you have to get a buy-in. Um, but mm-hmm. being on the front line, I have, you know, kind of earned the respect of my friends and families to go, if Sheila's not doing Thanksgiving, you know, I, I was telling my supervisor, you know, we had a small family Thanksgiving. There were five of us, um, I did an admission in someone's home last weekend. There were more people there, and I was in the house longer um, than I celebrated Thanksgiving. You know, so uh, hospice, home health, PT, the people coming in and out of people's homes. Um, you know, when you think about the hospital system, but there is another front line for these remarkable professionals who are going into people's homes with this thing that's invisible. Um, so we just, you know, we nurses know we, we gear up, we take the time. It's awful wearing these masks and face shields and gloves and everything, but mm. it's protection for us and it's protection for our families. And mm. if you can lead with example for the families, then, you know, they mask up, they gown up when we're in there and it feels a little safer. Hmm. Oh, Sheila, thank you for that wisdom. Oh, you're welcome. That was Sheila Erd. Uh, thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. 